Hello and welcome everybody wherever you are in the world. My name is Paul Ryan, I'm founder of PrescriptionRevision.com and I'm a GP and pharmacist based here in Ireland. I'm passionate about clinical pharmacology and therapeutics and really enjoy making the latest international guidance relevant to those of us at the coalface of primary care. So this is my third and final podcast uh, in the three-part series on travel medicine. I'm going to cover six topics today. Uh, first, high-altitude illness. Next, uh, next one, uh, Zika virus. Number three, cholera. Number four, tick-borne encephalitis. Number five, Japanese encephalitis. And finally, pediatric travel vaccines. So first, high-altitude illness. So the risk of high-altitude illness increases, obviously, with altitude. So at 2,500 metres, up to 25% of people will suffer from high-altitude illness. If you increase that to 4,500 metres, up to 75% of people will suffer from high-altitude illness. The places that uh, we see in our clinic where we have to prescribe the uh, acetazolamide are those people that are going to Machu Picchu or Cusco in Peru, La Paz in Bolivia, in Bolivia the Everest Base Camp in Nepal or Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. The symptoms, uh, uh, there's a wide range of symptoms. They include tunnel vision, headache and breathlessness. Now the major cause of altitude sickness is going too high too quickly so my usual advice when people request acetazolamide or the diamox is that its gradual ascent is the most important preventative measure and it can't be stressed enough um, if the patient if rapid ascent cannot be avoided or if there's a history of acute mountain uh, sickness well then prophylactic uh, acetazolamide given at 125 milligram bd uh, can be given if the altitudes are above 2,500 meters. Side effects of acetazolamide include peripheral paresthesia as well as polyuria. So the next topic is Zika virus. So this is very topical over the last year or two. And eight out of 100 pregnant women who are exposed to Zika virus will have a baby with microcephaly. Now, the issue with Zika is that 80% of patients don't have symptoms, so it's not reported. So if the patient is symptomatic, it is typical flu-like symptoms uh, such as fever, muscle aches and pains. But because it's not reported, means then we don't know the real prevalence. The main protection, it goes back to basics, is to avoid the mosquito. So long sleeves, light colour clothes, no perfumes, no perfume soaps, uh, keep windows closed, etc. Um, so the options for those returning home from the Zika area um, regarding the female, they have to wait two months before trying to conceive, but the male has to wait six months before trying to conceive. So if a couple will say go on a honeymoon, they must wait six months prior uh, to coming back uh, uh, or after coming back before trying to conceive. Serology can be performed, but they must wait two weeks after the last possible exposure. And even that test isn't 100%. The HSPC advised that if planning on conceiving uh, within 12 months, serology should be performed when the patients come back from the area. So cholera is the next topic. 
So this is acute diarrheal disease caused by an endrotoxin um, of Vibrio cholera in the small bowel. Most will have mild or no symptoms. And like hepe, it's picked up from poorly, poorly cooked mussels or clams. The vaccine, I've only given it a few times. It's only if you can't get bottled water, such as if it, those working in relief work in Kenya or Tanzania. The oral vaccine is uh, given on two occasions, on day zero and then either day seven up to day 42. You get 33 to 50% cover that lasts two years. And the aim is to have the second dose taken at least one week before departure. And it also helps to protect against the enterotoxigenic E. coli to some extent for three to four months. Now some Central African countries need proof of the cholera vaccine, so that's why it's requested. The fourth topic I'm going to discuss today is tick-borne encephalitis. So this is spread in spring and summer by ticks that feed, that feed on wild and domestic animals. Uh, so, such as those in forests and high grass areas within Eastern Europe, Russia, Asia and Mongolia. In Russia it is known as spring summer fever. Those at risk include uh, scouts uh, that uh, travel to the Black Forest or Mongolia. The tick-borne encephalitis vaccine tends to be a patient-driven vaccine, so the patient comes in and requests it. It is given at day zero, at one month, and then if required, a boost rate between five and 12 months. So for the second last topic of today's podcast, I'm going to discuss Japanese encephalitis. So Japanese encephalitis is a virus from infected mosquito in rural areas of Indonesia, Nepal, East India, Cambodia and Thailand. The vaccine is recommended for those who stay for prolonged periods in rural areas with active Japanese encephalitis transmission, so those in close proximity to paddy fields. So in, within our own clinic, this vaccine can be given to those ag science students who go over working in these areas, uh, in these in these areas for a number of months. Ixiara is the vaccine. It's given at day zero, day twenty-eight, and day uh, at one year. It is also recommended if the patient is going for an extended period of travel in Nepal. So for the last part of this podcast, I'm going to discuss paediatric travel vaccinations. So the vaccinations that can be given from one year of age upwards include yellow fever, hep A and tick-borne encephalitis. From 18 months, the rabies vaccine, the benefit tends to outweigh the risk. And just remember, rabies vaccine is safe even in pregnancy or those on steroids. It is not a live vaccine. From two years of age onwards, uh, cholera and typhoid vaccines can be given. And just remember, uh, Fennigan can also be given from two years of age and Imodium liquid, liquid from four years of age. So that brings me to the end of today's podcast. I hope you found it useful and I'm looking forward to delivering my next podcast.